Good morning, brothers and sisters. We're ready for our second class. Our speaker is Brother Roger Lewis. And the theme for Brother Lewis's classes this week is, Who Was the Nameless Man of God? Today's class is entitled, And There Came a Man of God. Brother Roger. Well, thank you, Brother Chairman, and good morning, my dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, then, we're going to start our studies proper, uh, and as our Chairman has announced uh, in particular this morning, this matter of the coming of the nameless man of God, as recorded for us in the first of Kings chapter 13. So if you come to that chapter now, the first of Kings 13, what we're going to do is take up the record from the very beginning of the story, because we're going to suggest that the first thing that we ought to do is to discover the story itself. We need to go through the story. It's going to take us several studies to do so. But that in learning the story, I suggest we will begin to discover the mystery of the story, but the one must precede the other. And so this story begins uh, actually with the, with the things that we looked at by way of exhortation. Because you remember that in the previous chapter, Jeroboam has installed his rival system of worship in Bethel. He set up a new temple. He set up a new altar. He set up a new fe feast. He's established an, a rival system of priesthood. And in fact, he was standing there on the altar in order to offer sacrifices to the calves. And so when it says in the first of Kings chapter 13 and verse 1, And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah... That particular verse and this particular chapter really begins in the middle of a story that's already begun, you see. Where did the man of God come from? He came out of Judah, the place of true worship, the place of God's true altar. And he came, it says, by the word of Yahweh unto Bethel. Now that's an interesting phrase because that phrase, by the word of Yahweh, or by the word of God, is used 50 times in the first and second book of Kings. But it's used 10 times in this one chapter alone. By the word of God. By the word of Yahweh. And, and I think what we're being told is that when this man comes by the word of Yahweh, that he's the word of God in action, you see. This man is the manifestation of God's word in action amongst his people. And so the record says that he came to Bethel and that Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And in the Hebrew, the text of verse 1 follows on without break from chapter 12 and verse 33. So perhaps we could read it that way. If we read the 33rd verse of the previous chapter, it says... So he offered upon the altar which he'd made in Bethel the 15th day of the 18th month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel 
and he offered upon the altar and burned incense. And Rodham says, And lo, a man of God came in out of Judah as Jeroboam was standing by the altar. And clearly what we're being told, brothers and sisters, is that the man of God arrived at the very moment that Jeroboam began his whole system of apostate worship. He's standing on that little ledge or platform beside the altar that permitted the priest to access there, to place sacrifices on the altar's top. That's what he was doing in chapter 12, verses 32 and 33. And incidentally, you might know, it was a rival or counterfeit feast of tabernacles. It's on the 15th day of the month, so it answers to tabernacles, but he's made it on the 8th month instead of the 7th. But it's a rival feast, and he's presiding as the high priest at the inaugural ceremony. Now, when it says that he stood there to burn incense, that word can mean either to perfume incense or to smoke a sacrifice. But I think in the context of chapter 12 and verse 32, he was clearly offering sacrifices. He sacrificed unto the calves which he'd made. Oh yes, I think Jeroboam was there on the altar offering sacrificial offerings as a high priest. And I think what he was doing, incidentally, he was, he was copying Solomon, you see, because we shan't turn it up, but in the first of Kings, chapter 8 and verses 62 to 64, at the inauguration of the temple, Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings during the Feast of Tabernacles, and Jeroboam says, I'm about to do the same thing. It was a complete counterfeit system. And that's the moment, brothers and sisters, that the man of God appears right there, at the inaugural ceremony. And verse 2 says, He cried, he cried against the altar in the word of Yahweh and said, O altar, altar, thus saith Yahweh. And in addressing his denunciation against the altar, when he cried out against the altar, what the man of God was really doing was condemning the complete system of worship that that altar stood related to. The altar was its focal point. And do you see how the verse ends? Upon thee shall he offer the priests to the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be, shall be burned upon thee. Oh yes, it's all about the altar, you see. This altar is the symbol of this entire corrupt system of worship. And yet in threatening the altar, the man of God was also rebuking its builder. So how would these threatened judgments come? Well, the man of God said this in verse 2. He said, O altar, altar, thus saith Yahweh, behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name. Now, it's an interesting verse, this one, in the first of Kings 13, because it's so precise in the naming of Josiah that some people, some scholars, have doubted the authenticity of the passage. It's too accurate. And so they've doubted whether, in fact, that's how the text should read. But I don't think there's any reason, brothers and sisters, to, to doubt the text or the circumstances that led to this message. Because, we'll just come back a chapter. Do you see what it says in chapter 12? And verse 19, so Israel rebelled against the house of David unto this day. And now verse 26, 
And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. And now the man of God comes, you see, brothers and sisters, and what he says is, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David. Oh yes, that's right in the context of what's going on at this very episode of time. And really what the man of God was saying is that one day, he says, a son of David will stand in Jeroboam's capital and remove Jeroboam's rival system of worship. It was a prophecy of the ultimate overthrow of Jeroboam's kingdom, the fall of his dynasty, and the triumph of his rival and his rival is indeed named because the one who would do this from the house of David, says the man of God, shall be called Josiah. And Josiah means whom Yahweh supports. And I think what we're being told, you see, in the, in the very reason why Josiah is named is because his name was an indication that Yahweh's purpose stood with the house of David. It always had. And certainly not with the house of Jeroboam, given the current spirit of the king. Now there's something interesting about the verse, and that's to do with the circumstances of its fulfillment. We're going to come to that story a little later on in our studies, God willing, but suffice to say this, that this prophecy of the man of God in the first of Kings chapter 13 is around about B.C. 930. But when Josiah fulfills it in the 2nd of Kings 23, it's about B.C. 622, and between the two is a gap of just over 300 years. So from the moment the man of God utters this, to the time Josiah fulfills it is a long time, 300 years. But you see, what we're being told is that when it did come, the altar and the priesthood would be destroyed, the bones would be burned upon the altar, the altar would be defiled and desecrated, exactly as the man of God had said, even though there might be some time that would elapse in the fulfillment of the prophecy. And I think what the man of God was saying was, all has been determined by God. The time has been uh, fixed, and the avenger has been named. It now begins. The clock starts to tick, says the man of God, you see. You know, there's a wonderful little poem. It's on the subject of retribution by Henry Longfellow, and he says this, Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceeding small. Though with patience he stands, waiting, with exactness grinds he all. And that's true of all God's judgments, isn't it, brothers and sisters? they will always come to pass. Sometimes it seems as if they've been deferred, but we ought not to believe that they will never happen. And even though the final fulfillment lay so far off in time, there was going to be an immediate proof for the audience of the day, and especially for Jeroboam, that all this would indeed come to pass, because the third verse says that he gave a sign the same day, saying, this is the sign 
which Yahweh hath spoken, behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. That word sign means a wonder. He gave a wonder. He prophesied of a wonder to come. And the wonder was that the altar shall be rent, and the ashes poured out. Now, clearly, brothers and sisters, the man of God was unable to make that wonder occur by himself. It's one thing to say the altar will be split and the ashes will, will pour out and to actually make it happen. He couldn't prophesy such a thing unless the hand of God was with him. And so the sign of the shattered altar and the scattered ashes was a tremendous, a vivid proof of the authenticity of this man's work as God's spokesman and God's messenger. If this miracle occurred, who could doubt the final outcome? Who would doubt that one day this altar would be destroyed absolutely and desecrated? So what a dramatic moment, brothers and sisters. The man of God's arrived at the precise moment that Jeroboam is there in all his priestly regalia to inaugurate his new system of false worship. And I think what happened, brothers and sisters, when the man of God had finished this dramatic message that all eyes turned from the man of God who'd appeared back to the king who stood in their sight on the altar, well, you can imagine how Jeroboam felt about such an intrusion. It wrecked the whole ceremony. It stopped him at his moment of glory. And so verse 4 says, And it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him. And his hand which he had put forth against him dried up so that he could not pull it in again. So just imagine the scene, brothers and sisters. Jeroboam is standing on the altar ledge. He's got the sacrifices there. They're smoking away. He's in the act of offering that sacrifice, and the man of God arrives and points to the altar and indicts the altar, but in so doing, indicts the king. And furious at the rebuke, all the eyes of the people watching him, Jeroboam swings around, and with his hand, he reaches out and he says, well, as the New International Version says, he stretched out his hand and said, seize him. Or as the New King James says, he stretched out his hand from the altar saying, arrest him which is probably exactly what he meant. And his hand, which he had put forth against him, dried up so that he could not pull it in again to him. He couldn't move it in or out. He couldn't move it up or down. It was completely frozen in paralysis. Do you know why that was so remarkable, brothers and sisters? Come to the book of Leviticus, in chapter 23, 21. The book of Leviticus, in chapter 21. And here are the instructions in the law for the service of the high priest. The high priest, note in particular, Leviticus 21, verse 17. Speak unto Aaron, saying, Whatsoever he be of thy seed in their generations that hath any blemish, let him not approach to offer the bread of his God. For whatsoever man he be that hath a blemish, he shall not approach. A blind man, or a lame, or he that hath a flat nose, or anything superfluous, or a man that is broken-footed or broken-handed. 
Another translation says, having a crippled hand. The Revised Standard Version says, having an injured hand. No such man with damage to his hand, verse 21, no man that hath a blemish of the seed of Aaron the priest shall come nigh to offer the offerings of Yahweh made by fire. He hath a blemish, he shall not come nigh to offer the bread of his God. And what we're being told, brothers and sisters, is that this very this disaster that had befallen the king's hand disqualified him from being a priest that could come to the Lord's altar and offer offerings. And on that day, by circumstance beyond his control, Jeroboam was disqualified from the very act that he'd wanted to lead on behalf of the nation. He was disqualified and there was absolutely nothing he could do about it. And not only was his hand frozen... The first of Kings chapter 13 goes on to say in the fifth verse that the altar also was rent and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. That the altar was rent, split asunder as the word means. So, so it must have been, a, a, again, a terrifying experience. First of all, the king says, arrest him and finds that his hand is frozen and he can't move it. And then while he's there, the altar right alongside him starts to tremble and then it splits apart and all the ashes pour out at the bottom. But you see that word ashes there? The word ashes in that verse refers to the fatty ashes of the sacrifice after they've been burned on the altar. And if you come to Psalm 20 for a moment, hold your hand in the first of Kings, chapter 13, and just come back to Psalm 20 uh, with your other hand. Do you notice what it says in the 20th Psalm? It actually uses that very word and helps us with our understanding of what was going on here. Psalm 20 in verse 3 says, Remember all thy offerings, and accept thy burnt sacrifice. But the margin says, for that phrase, accept thy burnt sacrifice, the margin says, turn to ashes or make fat. So you see, the turning to ashes and the making fat of the sacrifice indicated God's acceptance of the offering. But on this occasion, the ashes poured to the ground to indicate that those sacrifices had not been accepted by God. And given that this was probably the inaugural ceremony of King Jeroboam, then this was a disaster indeed. And so these events must have absolutely shocked him, and shocked him in such a way, incidentally, that clearly the hand of God was there on that day to protect the man of God. Now I think there's a lesson here, brothers and sisters, that comes out of the story of this man and this man's life at, at this moment, and, and it's a very helpful one because, well, it's about a principle, you see, and it's about the principle of courage. See, the man of God showed courage in denouncing the apostasy of Jeroboam, and he stood in the king's very presence to warn him of coming judgment. See, that wasn't an easy thing to do. That was a moment in the life of a person when there was real courage required. And this is not the courage of human bravery, is it, brothers and sisters? This is the courage of faith that burns brightly in a person. That despite their fears, they say something for the truth. Because they feel compelled to do so for the honor of God's purpose. And this man, of course, was under divine instruction to do so. But that didn't make the matter any less terrifying when he walked in on that day to the to Bethel and to the altar of Jeroboam. 
And isn't that the same courage that was shown in the first of Kings chapter 21 when Elijah strongly condemned Ahab for the death of Naboth and for his great wickedness in leading Israel astray? Do you remember that meeting in the garden, in the field? Don't you think Elijah was also in danger of his life? they just slain Naboth. Why would Elijah be any safer? And yet he stood and rebuked the king, roundly, unequivocally, because, well, because he, he needed to. But it took courage, didn't it? And I think one of the most amazing examples of courage is Esther. In the book of Esther, when Mordecai said, you've got to do something, and she said, I will go before the king, even if the sentence of death come upon me. Remember that phrase in the book of Esther, brothers and sisters? If I die, I die. Oh, yes, there was courage, and this young queen wasn't there to stand for the truth on that day. That's not the courage of human stoicism. That's the faith that burns in the heart of a brother or a sister that gives them the courage that ordinarily they may never have had to make a stand for the truth. And wasn't that the courage of John Baptist in Mark 6 when under the glaring and watchful eye of Herodias he said to Herod, you ought not to have taken her to wife. It's wrong. The Bible says it ought not to be so. And he declared that unlawful state without compromise even though his own life was endangered in the process, as well it was, courage. It's a simple thing, brothers and sisters, but there are times in the lives of all the saints when they're called upon to, to be courageous for the truth. It might be in a thing big or in a matter little, but the question is, will we do it at the moment it arrives in our lives? That's the moment of test, isn't it, whether we love the truth dearly enough to do and to say what's right. Well, to the credit of the man of God, he, he did just this. There would be no judicial execution on this day because God had moved to protect his man, but the man of God couldn't have been certain of that until, until it happened. Of course, it left the king in, in an impossible position, didn't it? Here he is, his hand is frozen, the altar's rent, the ashes are poured out, and the king's actually much more worried now about his own circumstance because if all this could happen, well, why, the king himself might die. And all the people are watching him and he can't take command of the situation. In fact, all he can do is ask for help, which he does. Verse 6, the first of Kings 13, verse 6 says, And the king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of Yahweh thy God and pray for me that my hand may be restored again. Oh, now there's something interesting about that, brothers and sisters. You see, he asks the man of God to pray to God for him. Now, again, just hold your hand in the first of Kings 13, and allow me to draw your attention to a couple of cross-references. The first one is in the Old Testament. It's in Psalm 134. So just a couple of passages that just make the point, you see, about how powerful this circumstance, this moment was in the life of the man of God and in the life of the king. The king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of Yahweh thy God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored. Do you see what it says in Psalm 134 and verses 1 and 2? Behold, bless ye Yahweh, all ye servants of Yahweh, which by night stand 
in the house of Yahweh. Do you know who that is, brothers and sisters? That's the priests. The priests stood in the house of Yahweh. And they are those, verse 2, who lift up their hands in the sanctuary and bless Yahweh. And of course we realize that that phrase, lift up the hands, is, well, it's a synonym for prayer, isn't it? Because that's what they used to do. When they prayed, they lifted up their hands and prayed. So the psalmist says, lift up your hands in the sanctuary. What he really says is pray in the sanctuary. But lifting up the hands is the terminology used to express that because that was the mode that they adopted. And likewise, if you come to the New Testament and to the book of Timothy, the first of Timothy, and chapter 2, we're told something very similar in the New Testament council for ecclesial life. And we're told there in the first of Timothy in chapter 2 and verse 8, the record says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and doubting. I will therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up hands. And now you know, brothers and sisters, why the king had to ask the man of God to pray. Because this man who's masquerading as a priest in the first of Kings chapter 13 can't pray because he can't lift up his hands. He's powerless. Absolutely powerless. Oh, and did you notice this? He doesn't appeal to the golden calves to heal him. Now he asks the man of God that he might offer prayer to his God. And the man of God did, brothers and sisters, because back in the first of Kings, in chapter 13 and verse 6, the record says, And the man of God indeed did beseech, he besought Yahweh, and the king's hand was restored him again and became as it was before. It's a very interesting word, that, that, word, that, um, that word besought. In the Hebrew, it's two words, it's panim, which actually means to stroke the face, to soften the face of God by intercession. It's the same word for entreat, when the king asks him, entreat, entreat now the face of Yahweh for me. Soften the face of God for me, he says. And that's exactly what the man of God did. He prayed, and he prayed, brothers and sisters, because he was seeking Jeroboam's reformation, not his ruin. You see, there was a chance here, a chance for the king to repent, a chance for him to confess, a chance for him to change. So yes, the man of God prayed. Prayed from the one who just asked for him to be arrested. And healing came because of the power of the prayer of a man of God offered for the need of someone else who had opposed him. That's the spirit of the truth, isn't it? And verse 7 says, the king, the king said unto the man of God, come home with me and refresh thyself and, and I will give thee a reward. Now, that was a thoroughly biblical thing to do. In fact, it was Abrahamic, wasn't it? Genesis 18, verse 5, to refresh guests. That was an Abrahamic spirit. So, for the king to do that, well, that was absolutely acceptable. But it was more than that, I think, because if you come to the first of Samuel chapter 9, again, just a couple of references. Do you remember how back in the first of Samuel chapter 9 and verses 7 and 8, when Saul was looking for his father's lost asses, 
we're told this. He said, um, Saul said to his servant, 1 Samuel 9 verse 7, Behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man of God? For the bread is spent in our vessels, and there's not a present to bring to the man of God. What have we? And the servant answered Saul and said, Behold, I have here at hand the fourth part of a shekel of silver. That will I give to the man of God. When you went to see a prophet, brothers and sisters, you customarily took a gift. Likewise, in the second of Kings chapter 5 and verse 15, when Naaman comes to see the prophet Elisha, he begs that he might accept a gift of him, because, well, that's what you did. You took a gift to a prophet when you'd asked for their favor or for their help. And that's what the man of God is, is offered here by Jeroboam in the first of Kings chapter 13 and verse 7. Come to my place, he says, and I will refresh you and give you a reward. Now, we could think, we could imagine that Jeroboam had a more sinister or devious motive, that it may have been that he wanted to neutralize the man of God, and that by inviting him home to his place, that he wanted to minimize the effect of the man of God by seeking association with him. Come to my place, as if to say, oh no, we're all good, we actually had a meal together, it all worked out fine. But no, I don't actually think that's the spirit of Jeroboam on this occasion. I think that given the drama of his deliverance, I think he really did want to show hospitality and to reward the man of God for the miracle of his healing. But the sad thing, brothers and sisters, the really sad thing about verse 7, you see, is that his thankfulness did not lie in being shown the way of sin in his life. Now, he was thankful for a lucky escape from a physical affliction that would have disabled him. So he was happy to invite the man of God home for that. He was happy to refresh and he was prepared to reward. But he wasn't prepared to return or to reform or to repent in his own life. No, that wasn't the spirit of Jeroboam, despite the drama of the circumstance that had happened to him that day. Come home with me and refresh thyself and I will give thee a reward. And the man of God said, verse 8, If thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. So you see, the man of God is very clear, isn't he, about his mission. And he's very resolute in the performance of it. In fact, he showed absolute faithfulness in making his refusal clear. Oh, and you notice this, brothers and sisters, verse 8, it's not just the king's house he won't go into. He says, I can't break bread, I can't have bread or water in this place. He wasn't prepared to eat in Bethel in its entirety. It was the place of Jeroboam's apostasy. The whole house of God, Bethel, was the place that he could not associate with, and so he would not eat bread or drink water, it says, and now he gives the reason, verse 9, he says, For so it was charged me by the word of Yahweh, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. Now there's a reason for this, and it's it's the reason which is to be found in how the Jewish people considered food. If you come to Hosea chapter 9, so just two or three cross-references that, that I think are helpful. 
Um, there's, a, of course, a very famous one which we won't turn up in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, that the Daniel purposed that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. But, but here's another one in Hosea chapter 9. In Hosea chapter 9, a little phrase about the moment of the sufferings of the children of Israel. We're told there in chapter 9 and, and verse 3, it says, They shall not dwell in Yahweh's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt and they shall eat unclean things in Assyria. See that? They shall eat unclean things in Assyria. And part of the judgment that lay upon the house of Israel was the notion that they would have to break bread with Gentiles, which they ought not to do. They'd have to eat unclean things in an unclean place with unclean people, which offended the very conscience of the Jews, because to eat bread was to be in fellowship. Unclean things in Assyria. And likewise, in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5, you might recall the saying of some who disparaged the Lord because of a certain meal that he attended, because of a certain group of people that he ate with. Because Luke chapter 5 and verse 30 tells us that when Levi made a great feast in his house at which there was a great company of publicans, it says in Luke 5, verse 30, But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do ye eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Eating and drinking with publicans and sinners. That was an act of fellowship. How could you do that? How could your master do that? Said the Pharisees to the Lord's disciples. And one last one. Well, you'll know it, brothers and sisters. Acts chapter 10. It's the very discovery of, of Peter himself when he was bidden to preach the truth to the Gentiles. And you might remember that. Well, let's read it in Acts chapter 10. It says in verses 13 and 14, There came a voice to Peter saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. But verse 28 of Acts 10 tells us what the real meaning of that was when Peter says, Ye know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation, but God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So eating things common and unclean was symbolic of associating with people who were common and unclean, and Jewish people wouldn't do that. So coming back to the man of God in the first of Kings chapter 13 and verse 9, what we're being told is that the man of God says, I can't eat bread or drink with you because that is an act of fellowship. And I will not do that because the very reason why he was there was to teach Jeroboam that he was not in fellowship with God. I cannot eat. We're not in fellowship. And of course, by the way, what we're being told there is that the man of God acts on behalf of and is the representative of God himself on this occasion. I cannot break bread with you because God is not in fellowship with you, or more to the point, you're not in fellowship with God at this point of time. There will be no breaking bread or drinking water in this place, he says. No, what God told me to do, back in the first of Kings chapter 13 and verse 9, what he asked me to do was, nor turn again 
by the same way that thou camest. So he was not to give any impression whatsoever of frequenting the land of Israel. So by leaving using a different route, I, that's how New Zealanders would say it. I know you would say route, but it's route, as English is spoke. So by going in a different direction, no one could force him to delay his departure. He couldn't be traced, he couldn't be followed, he couldn't be brought back to Bethel. He was to complete his commission and then depart without any further contact with anyone else, you see. And so he told the king all of that without prevarication. So he certainly showed courage. And so we're told in verse 10 that that's exactly what he did. It says he went out another way and he returned not by the way that he came. And so when he did that, he fulfilled his commission as requested. His arrival, his prediction, and his departure were all unique moments designed to symbolize the intervention of God, but certainly not fellowship. And you see, his exit from the scene was as significant a testimony as his arrival. Who would have dared behave in such a way before a king? He appeared out of nowhere, he delivers his warning, and now he's going to vanish without trace. So his message was delivered in what context, brothers and sisters, and with what spirit? Ah, well, I think he was, his message was delivered in the context of the fact that he was a stranger and a sojourner, wasn't he? That for this moment of time, he's simply passing through. I don't belong to this place. He's the stranger sojourner of Genesis chapter 23, verse 4. That was Abraham's words, wasn't it? I'm but a stranger and a sojourner among you. And, and David quotes Abram's words in the first of Chronicles chapter 29, verse 15. He says, we're all strangers and sojourners as our fathers were. And the first of Peter chapter 2, verse 11, the apostle quotes Abraham and says, I beseech you as strangers and sojourners. So that's the spirit of the saints of all ages. We're strangers and sojourners just passing through. We don't belong here. We have no citizenship here. We have no continual city here. So this man of God was going to turn up just like a stranger and leave just like a stranger. And I think there's a lesson in that, you see, and an important one for our own lives and the truth. And it's about the matter of the witness of separation. See, what the man of God did here is he refused the offer of the king of Israel and he maintained separation from one whose apostasy he was going to witness against. I'm sorry, I, I, can't, I can't do that. It was the witness of separation. And isn't that what Abraham did in chapter 14 of Genesis when he refused the goods of the king of Sodom and maintained separation from one whom he'd vowed not to fellowship because of what Sodom stood for? And isn't that what Daniel does and what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 5 when he refuses the reward of the king of Babylon and he maintains separation from one whose kingdom he was about to judge? Now I must be separate, he says. 
And isn't that what Peter does in Acts chapter 8 and verses 20 to 22 when Peter refused the money of the sorcerer of Samaria and maintained separation from one whose spirit of avarice he was about to condemn. So the principle of separation is related to the matter of witness, brothers and sisters. We cannot testify to an evil and corrupt world if we're deeply embedded in the same way of life. The real force of the message of the man of God lay in the fact that he clearly was someone who did not belong to the order of things he came to speak out against. So we've got to think about how that works in life today. Christ asked us to be in the world but not of it. And what we've got to see in the man of God is an illustration of what that looks like and feels like. We have to work out what it means to be in the world, but not of it. How do we show that? How do we reveal that? How do we demonstrate that? And yet part of the effectiveness of witness is that we, when we say something in the spirit of the truth about something in this world that's not good or not right, we, we can't do that, brothers and sisters, if we're clearly involved in doing exactly the same thing, behaving the same way, going to the same places, wearing the same clothes, listening to the same music, reading the same books, watching the same movies. You can't witness without separation. Now, I know there's a balance here, brothers and sisters, because we're still in the world. I understand that. But the question is, it's a matter of degrees, isn't it? How do we work out the life of the saint of God and I think here's the principle, is that when separation is lost, witness is compromised, we need to work out how that might apply in our lives. We dance the dance every day in managing such a situation. But this man of God was clearly a stranger and a pilgrim on the day he walked into Bethel and the day he left again by a totally different route so that no one saw how he came or as it was when he left. So what a dramatic meeting, brothers and sisters. And what a dramatic arrival. And what a dramatic message from the man of God on this occasion when at the very start of Jeroboam's crisis of apostasy, he came to deliver this message. O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord. So would he be heard is the question, of course. Would his mission succeed? Well, that, brothers and sisters, is the subject of our next study.